0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, January 25th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this agency's whistleblower program has paid out billions of dollars. Plus, the Air Force Research Lab creates a new approach to situational awareness in space. Those stories are much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Cyber Safety Review Board at the Homeland Security Department has been around for nearly two years. Well, now Congress is looking to codify the board into law... But that comes with some potential changes to how the investigative panel actually works. More now from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, this review board has been modeled after the National Transportation Safety Board. They kind of comb through accidents to see what the heck caused it. How does the cyber board work? What does Congress think they might do with it?
2: Yeah, well, the cyber board was created by that big cybersecurity executive order President Joe Biden signed back in May of 2021. And it was created to investigate major cyber incidents, similar to how the NTSB investigates those major aviation incidents, like maybe a door falling off an airplane. Well, in the cybersecurity world, there are similar incidents, and the board was created to really look into those. They've issued two reports so far, one reviewing the open source log for j Vulnerability, and the second diving into the lapsus cyber criminal game. Now, DHS is asking lawmakers to formally establish this board into law. Some experts say it might need some more independence and transparency into how it actually works. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee is looking at some changes. Committee Chairman Gary Peters says there's clearly more the board can do to support the nation's cybersecurity, so that's something to look out for.
1: And more independent means it would not be in DHS? Or what do they have in mind when they say
2: more independent? There are a range of opinions on that question. You know, right now, the board's chairman is Rob Silvers, DHS's deputy undersecretary for policy. The deputy chairwoman is Heather Adkins. She's vice president of security engineering at Google. And out of the 15 members of the CSRB, seven are from industry or non-federal organizations, while eight are federal officials, agency heads and things like that. So these people are all walking into the board with uh, dual hats on their heads. And some folks think that's an issue. Tara Wheeler is one of those. She's chief executive of cybersecurity firm Red Queen Dynamics. She testified before the Senate Homeland Security panel last week.
1: If the NTSB worked like the CSRB does now, NTSB investigations would be conducted by the FAA administrator, the chief pilot at Boeing, and the chief revenue officer of Delta Airlines. Ooh, that's a sharp critique, I would say, of the way the board operates. I love that company name, Red Queen Dynamics. And so what does industry say, what do they say about these questions, about this whole membership question?
2: Yeah, even industry is not unanimous. Miss on how exactly this should work. And they certainly think there could be issues with having some industry members in investigating other companies, potentially their competitors. That's a point that John Miller, the general counsel at the Information Technology Industry Council, raised during last week's hearing.
0: The one thing that I think is clear that if there is private sector participation in the board, and I represent private sector companies, we think that certainly private sector companies have a lot to add to this discussion. There really should be clear membership selection processes, and there should really be a very clear process for recusal and and making sure that we don't have either
3: real or perceived conflicts of interest or, or business advantage.
1: And again, that's John Miller of the Information Technology Industry Council. And you're reporting, Justin, that there is the idea of giving this in Congress, of giving the board subpoena power.
2: Yeah, that's right. DHS, as part of its request to Congress, is actually asking for subpoena power for the board. There's an incident and they need to compel certain facts from a company that might be hacked or might be part of a hack. They might need this power. All the experts who testified before the Senate committee last week generally agreed that subpoena power could be useful. But, you know, some say the way the board is structured right now with industry members and other agencies involved, that might not be a great idea. Miller from ITI argues that there's already regulatory powers that can investigate certain cyber incidents. So giving it to the CSRB. They need to work out how those work together. But, you know, Trey Hare, director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council, says the board will really need this power at some point to fully investigate cyber incidents.
0: For the board's ability to investigate large complex incidents where there is profit motive to protect potentially some of that information in play, and this committee and others have seen the challenge in investigating complex issues within the technology industry, the subpoena can be a basic and useful mechanism as part of that. I think it's important to note that the subpoena exists within a specific authority as used by the board, like the NTSB, which is not punitive. It does not connect to a law enforcement investigation, and it is not tied to an explicit regulatory authority.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of complications in this. And, you know, going ahead with this idea of the transportation department model, you know, in some areas you do have cooperation between the industry, the airlines, and also the airplane builders. And there's this kind of co-inspection of airliners being built by the FAA and people designated by the aircraft builders. And you do have CISA that looks at things. So maybe there's some merit to that idea that the board could be within DHS, but consist of people that work for the government and not for industry.
2: It seems like the upshot from what lawmakers said at that hearing and what the experts testified, some sort of middle ground, seems to be the board will probably not become a full-fledged independent agency, but there needs to be some more independence and transparency in how it works. Those were kind of the watchwords, especially with how they select the incidents that they choose to investigate. Folks said there's a lack of transparency around hey, why did they choose to pick up this lapsus criminal game review? There are several private sector cybersecurity companies that are already looking into gangs like that. Shouldn't the board be looking at specific incidents and using kind of their unique powers in that regard to do so? So it's an evolving board. It's like less than two years old. So there's a lot to happen here. The NTSB is almost 50 years old in its current incarnation. So it'll be interesting to watch how the CSRB evolves.
1: And does the CSRB publish the results of what it has found out in detail the way the NTSB does?
2: They do. They publish the results of what they found out. They publish these in-depth reviews. They're working on one right now around uh, cloud security and the Microsoft Exchange Online hacks that happened last summer that affected the email accounts of Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and State Department officials. So that's one to watch out for. So
1: stay tuned. And these are not the only changes that the CSRB would undergo with Congress the way they're looking at this law.
2: It, well, yeah, th- there's a few things they're looking at. One, one is the the makeup of the board, who should be on it, how should recusal processes work, and co- we covered that. And then what I just mentioned, uh, how the board selects the incidents that it investigates. Uh, Miller and some of the other folks who testified last week questioned why the board, like I said, chose to investigate the lapsus cyber gang. It was a kind of a broader review of the cyber gang's activities rather than a specific incident. So that's something to watch as well.
1: All right. And who's behind this in Congress, by the way?
2: The Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee is looking at this issue closely. Chairman Gary Peters made several comments that they're going to, to look at this issue this year and how the CSRB is actually authorized.
1: Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Air Force Research Lab creates a new approach to situational awareness in space. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. You may not wake up thinking about cislunar space situational awareness, but people at the Air Force Research Laboratories do. In fact, AFRL has two programs for such awareness, two programs they've brought together. The resulting program is called the Oracle Family of Systems. Well, here with what they're actually doing and why it matters to the Air Force, we turn to two of the project leaders, Mission Lead Jamie Stearns. Ms. Stearns, good to have you with us.
4: Hi, Tom. Great to be here.
1: And Investigator James Frith. James, good to have you with us. Hey. Yeah, good to be here. All right. So let's begin at the beginning here. Cislunar Space Situational Awareness. It's a mouthful. What is it exactly?
4: Sure. So let's break that term down a little bit. Uh, We'll start with cislunar. Kind of technically, that means the area between the Earth and the Moon. But a bunch of us have started using it in a much more general sense. And I think that was codified in a national strategy that was actually released uh, in November of 2022, that talks about cislunar space as the area all the way out to the Moon and a little bit beyond, that is to these points of stability called Lagrange points, and there's one on the far side of the Moon about 65,000 kilometers further than the Moon. And so cislunar space goes all the way out there, and the way that we talk about it, we usually mean it to start not quite at the Earth, but beyond geosynchronous orbit. So a little bit beyond the area where the Department of Defense in particular is used to operating. Uh, We really use cislunar to mean that whole area beyond where we're used to operating to the other side of the moon and all of that in a full sphere that rotates as the moon rotates around the Earth.
1: In general, though, operations don't go really much beyond that which can orbit the Earth itself, right? There's nothing besides the moon that's as far away as the moon.
4: There are a few satellites out there already. NASA is looking to send the Artemis missions out that way. Other countries and commercial operators are sending a fair amount of traffic all the way out to the moon. But in terms of Department of Defense operations, that has really just been at geosynchronous orbit and below historically. And that's some of what the Air Force Research Lab is looking to expand here.
1: Okay, and you were going to continue with one more thought.
4: Yeah, I was going to define space situational awareness. That's really just the process of keeping track of all of the objects in space. In its most general form, it means both natural objects and man-made objects, those satellites. Our focus is largely on keeping track of satellites so that we understand where they're at. We can make sure that they're not going to run into each other. If anything goes wrong with one of them, knowing where it's at helps provide support to the operator of that satellite. And this is something that we have done traditionally, again, in geosynchronous orbit and below. And we give that data away free to the world. We help owner operators operate in all of those traditional orbit regimes. And what we're trying to do at AFRL is expand the capabilities to do that space situational awareness all the way out to the moon. All right. The Artemis program goes back. We can help them understand where they are and make sure that nothing else is going to run into them.
1: And Dr. Frith, what form does this take? What kind of surveillance and listening devices or eyeballs are required here?
0: Well, it's it's really not any different than what we've done in the past with Earth-based telescopes or either optical or RF, radio frequency. The only real difference is adjusting the capabilities of the traditional telescopes to account for the, the greater distances and a sort of increased complexity of the dynamics that happen when you start not only having to predict the motion of an object based on the gravity due to the Earth, but also when both the Earth and the Moon are affecting a satellite, which gets very complicated very fast and is, uh, is called the three-body problem. The The gravitational dynamics get extremely complicated um, in, in your ability to predict where these things are going to be over time.
1: Yeah, it sounds like um, three-dimensional but, billiards.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you, you don't really want them to run into each other. But yeah, it's very much skating on an ice rink, meaning that small forces can really make huge differences on the eventual location of the object over
4: time.
1: And for this project, the Air Force has had some particular instruments in space for the cislunar research. Tell us about those and what's up there now.
4: Most of our research now has been really more ground-based than space-based. We are in the process of developing two satellites to actually go out to cislunar space and really begin pioneering how to do the Space Situational Awareness Mission out near the Moon. So those are the two programs that we now call Oracle Mobility and Oracle Prime. And Oracle Mobility is really kind of the quick-turn Pathfinder mission that initially began as a mobility experiment. And... Kind of through a convergent evolution process when we all realized how important cislunar space was going to become, the Oracle M program office decided that they really wanted to focus on cislunar as the best demonstration of where they could explore the really high mobility that their satellite is going to have. And we also realized there was an opportunity to just get hands on experience for our scientists, for our operators, for anyone in the Space Force who wants to be part of this program to be able to actually learn to fly a satellite in cislunar space. And that's really what the Oracle M program is doing.
1: And does this instrument that will be launched, I guess, does it use optical viewing of what's out there? Or, you know, tell us more about what it actually can do. It can see things with optical and send back an image.
4: Exactly. It'll have an optical telescope on it, so it will be taking pictures of the sky around it and hoping to capture any non-star objects that are also in that field of view. Oracle M will be primarily focused on tracking objects that we already know are there, just practicing doing that, saying, hey, we can go find this satellite that we know is out there. Let's go up, let's take a picture of it. And when I say picture, not a resolved image or anything. These are just dots because they're very, very, very far away. And be able to send that image back to the ground for further processing to say, yes, that is the satellite we thought it was, and then make that data available to the rest of the community for any research purposes they may have.
1: This is getting all more urgent, right, as more and more nations are able to launch things into space, and we're not sure of what their intentions are all the time.
4: Well, I think there's just going to be a lot of activity in cislunar space, period. You know, just our own internal open source estimates. There's going to be about 100 objects out there by 2026, if you include all the active satellites that we know are going from every country, from NASA, from commercial. And then, you know, anomalies happen, things go wrong. There's always going to be an element of surprise where even if everyone is doing, you know, everything quite responsibly and nobody has any, you know, bad intentions, things still happen. So we just want to be able to observe all of these satellites and be prepared if, you know, we need to help people understand where objects are and make sure that we can not have any conjunctions or have a bad day in CisLunar space.
1: Sure. And let me ask you, James, when a dot is discovered, I mean, what does it take to understand that, hey, that dot wasn't there yesterday or it's not just another star and this kind of thing. There must be a lot of processing that goes on to make sure that that dot is really what you think it is.
0: Yeah, and you're actually poking at some of the more fundamental research that we're doing at AFRL, which is, doing exactly that, so being able to build up a database of objects that already exist in the center space. There are, are you know, multiple NASA missions, multiple missions that were launched a long time ago, the 60s and 70s, exploring this space. And, you know, so building up a catalog of things that we already know are out there, making the catalog more accurate, And then, you know, if we observe a new object that isn't within the catalog, to update the catalog as best we can. And again, share that with the community, make sure that everyone knows what's out there, and they can move out of the way as needed, if that's an issue. But truly, the dynamics of this environment is complicated, working sort of in the realm of chaos theory, meaning that as you increase the amount of time from an observation, you actually get unpredictable results in the future. So taking sort of basic PhD-level research and turn it into an applied capability is one of our research efforts here uh, currently.
2: Yeah,
1: so Um, a lot um, of science has come to bear on this, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, so there are two main thrusts. One is that dynamical problem, which is increasing our accuracy in how we can predict these objects' location over time. Uh, And the other big piece of that is the technology needed in order to produce data to actually observe the objects, which... There are certain situations where that's truly impossible from the Earth itself, which is why we need a space-based component for uh, Syslin or SSA.
1: And I'm getting a little whiff of artificial intelligence in here.
0: We're starting with just uh, biological intelligence first. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's certainly, uh, that's one tool in in the potential toolbox for for us to use. But again, it's not necessarily uh, going to solve everything.
1: And the fact that this is all happening at the Air Force Research Laboratory and not at, say, Space Force, which is supposed to have the operational ownership of the space domain, sounds like we're in the early stages of understanding what goes on up there and how to figure out how we can observe it. Fair to say?
4: That's a perfect description. You know, James and I both do officially work for the Space Force aligned under Air Force Research Lab. And so, yeah, the main goals of these programs and all the research that James discussed really is to help any future programs that are, you know, official and operationally run out of the Space Force to understand, you know, not even just what do we build, but even understand the basic requirements. It's, It's, as James said, a very complicated space, and we want to help understand how you really do this mission and be able to define those requirements.
1: And have we found anything out there yet?
4: Yeah, so there have been dozens of launches over the last
0: year or two. To this region, which is you know, proof that this is a, an area that we need to focus on um, as, a, as a nation in terms of making sure that we can uh, track these objects. So Artemis 1 launched a little while back and deployed 10 CubeSats, which are now within that region. So tracking them has been challenging. The Luna 25 was launched recently. There's a Korean launch called KPLO. There have been up to about a dozen or more satellites that have been launched this winter space in the last couple of years, and these have been very useful test objects to you know, work on the dynamic problem that we're discussing. You know, Some of these have been observed, some of these haven't, but we're testing out tools and techniques all the time.
4: There's another interesting aspect of this, too, of historical launches, so just during the course of our research and trying to build out how you would build a catalog for sislunar space, we've you know come across objects that were launched in the 60s, like rocket bodies from some of those early missions. Um, that have kind of been rediscovered and put back into some of our catalogs. So we're, we're kind of practicing that discovery phase as well with things that were launched a long, long time ago.
1: All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Sounds like interesting work. Dr. Jamie Stearns is a space vehicle's mission lead, and Dr. James Frith is a principal investigator. They are both with the Oracle Project at the Air Force Research Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: Thanks a lot. Thank you.
1: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, when it comes to your TSP stocks, no use looking backwards. But first, this agency's whistleblower program has paid out billions of dollars. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Securities and Exchange Commission has received 18,000 tips from would-be whistleblowers in 2023. That's half again more than the year before. Since starting its whistleblower program back in 2011, the SEC has paid tipsters some $6.3 billion. My next guest says the program will only continue. He's a whistleblower attorney and partner at Eumann and Caputo, John Crutchlow. Mr. Crutchlow, good to have you with us. Uh, Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And the SEC does come up regularly as kind of a model for whistleblowers. I guess they established their program in the distant aftermath of the Madoff scandals, which the SEC somehow turned a blind eye to and really got religion, sounds like.
3: Yeah, the, uh, the whistleblower program uh, came out in about 2011 and has been a, really a tremendous success over the last uh, more than a decade at this point. The uh, nonprofit Better Markets recently uh, issued a report suggesting that whistleblower tips have resulted in over $6 billion in monetary sanctions against uh, folks who have violated the securities law. So it really has been a big boon to SEC enforcement efforts over that
1: time. Should people go directly to the SEC? Should they get a lawyer first? I mean, what's the, best, what's the best practice here for the whistleblower?
3: Every situation is certainly unique. First and foremost, if somebody would like to file anonymously, the law requires them to hire a lawyer to do that. But even if they don't want to file anonymously, there are a lot of advantages to working with a lawyer who's experienced not only with the securities laws, but also with the whistleblower program. First, the lawyer can help with assessing the strength of the whistleblower's evidence uh, in light of the applicable law. And can help identify gaps in the evidence or blind spots that might exist and can provide advice if possible on how to fill those gaps the lawyer can also provide i think pretty invaluable help in preparing a whistleblower submission to highlight the evidence and the issues most likely to be of interest to the sec and in a way that will eventually hopefully be most helpful to an sec investigation Uh, it also can often be helpful to have a dialogue with somebody in the sec's enforcement division before submitting a tip and the lawyer can help with these things
1: if a lawyer who's external decides to go on with this and help the whistleblower because there could be a good reward eventually from the sec does the lawyer, will a lawyer, will you, work on the basis of that future settlement or payout, or does the whistleblower need to make that investment themselves?
3: Most most lawyers who practice in this area, I find, uh, do work on a contingency basis. So, so most lawyers who will represent whistleblowers in a case like this will not get paid unless unless there is an award paid to the whistleblower at the end of the case.
1: Which I would think would make you selective about which cases you take on.
3: Certainly, yes. It, it doesn't help anybody to try to bring a case to the SEC that is not meritorious.
1: Right. Right. And that takes even the good cases, though, Takes some patience on everybody's part. It takes time to get these things settled, discovered and settled and decided.
3: Yes, I think uh, any any lawyer who practices in this area is going to spend a lot of time up front working with the client to make sure that the case is one that actually has a good chance of being successful.
1: We were speaking with whistleblower attorney John Crutchlow. He's a partner at Human and Caputo. When someone is protected in that manner, though, they're still out of work. Even though the SEC is going after the company, that's great. What happens to the person then?
3: Well, again, uh, I think if uh, the company would have to know that the person is an SEC whistleblower for that, uh, for them to be fired for that, uh, and the company would face pretty drastic consequences if they uh, identify the person as an SEC whistleblower and then fire the person. But uh, yeah, it can happen. And one of the big, obviously, one of the most well reported aspects of the whistleblower program are the financial incentives that come with it. Um, And that is to help compensate people for the risk that they take. And the, you know, the whistleblower program has paid out uh, a considerable number of awards uh, over the years, including some pretty substantial awards over the years. Uh, I think that the program has paid something like $2 billion to almost 400 whistleblowers over the last uh, decade plus. So there are pretty substantial financial
1: awards. Some others have pointed out a couple of problems with the SEC program. What, in your opinion, should they still do to make it up to full greatness, if you will, for for whistleblowers?
3: Yeah, the SEC whistleblower program has uh, undoubtedly been incredibly successful. Um, It has been a real boon to SEC enforcement efforts uh, over the years uh, without any question. I think if if there were room for improvement, I think there are definitely a couple areas where um, the program could be improved. One of them is the amount of time it takes between when a uh, the SEC resolves an action uh, that qualifies for a whistleblower award, between when a whistleblower applies for that award, and the money is actually paid, can be uh, quite a long time. Can be well over a year. Can be sometimes be more than two years. So. I think the law could be strengthened if there were some pretty hard and fast deadlines in place for the SEC to, uh, to pay awards uh, to qualified whistleblowers. In addition to that, I think the law could be improved to prevent retaliation or to give the SEC enforcement authority to bring an action for retaliation against somebody who is a whistleblower, has, has raised appropriate issues internally, and is retaliated against for that before they have become an a formal SEC whistleblower, before they've actually submitted a tip. So in order for the SEC to take enforcement action against a company for retaliating against a whistleblower, that person has to have already filed a tip with the SEC. Um, if they have not yet done so, the SEC doesn't have authority to go after uh, a company, for example, for uh, bringing retaliatory action. So um, I think the law could be strengthened by allowing the SEC to do so, even if a person is not yet a uh, formal SEC whistleblower. Yes, yeah,
1: so that would be a statutory requirement to change that.
3: The, the rules would have to change for sure.
1: Yeah. The rules or the law?
3: The, the law would have to change um, and the implementing regulations would have to change. And ultimately, the SEC took the position that it was entitled to, to take that action. But the Supreme Court uh, interpreted the existing law. As saying that somebody would have to actually be an SEC whistleblower defined as somebody who has actually filed a tip with the SEC to, uh, in order to for the SEC to take enforcement action against a company for retaliation. Um, so that was uh, basically a, a uh, an interpretation that the Supreme Court made, which is the law of the land today and can be fixed by a by a change to the law.
1: And with respect to whistleblower practices across the government. Is the SEC a model for other agencies that could improve their programs, do you think?
3: The SEC is, is a fantastic model. Um, I think that it uh, has been very, very successful. There is certainly a culture inside the SEC that, well, I, I was an SEC attorney myself. Uh, I have now been practicing before the SEC um, as a whistleblower attorney and uh, I can tell you that that the SEC culture is is pro whistleblower. I think that whistleblowers are respected. Their uh, their confidentiality is is protected when possible. Uh, the retaliation provisions are enforced when possible. Uh, so I think that culture is something to be applauded and is something that other agencies could adopt as well. And the uh, the process in place, you know, the um, very good sophisticated. SEC enforcement attorneys are reviewing every single whistleblower submission that comes in the door, um, and not all of them are assigned for investigation. You know, with eighteen thousand tips coming in the door, it is uh, it is certainly not the case that uh, every single one that has good information gets assigned. But but you you can be assured that a good, sophisticated SEC enforcement attorney is going to put eyes on your submission, and that's good confidence to have. And I think a lot of other agencies could could benefit from from that model
1: and we should point out too that the SEC can only hear financial irregularities if there's some EEO type of violation or something in some other area than finance then you got to go somewhere else anyway
3: yeah this is uh, the SEC whistleblower program is for information about violations of the securities laws
1: whistleblower attorney John Crutchlow is a partner at human and Caputo thanks so much for joining me
3: thanks Tom I appreciate it
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com/slash federal drive. Subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, when it comes to your TSP stocks, no use looking backwards. This is the federal drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the federal drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. If the 2023 stock market showed anything, it's that you can't predict the stock market. Instead, you need a strategy you can stick with. Art Stein of Arthur Stein Financial joins me now with what the rearview mirror is telling investors. And Art, why don't we begin with your assessment of the past year in terms of the TSP? And I know you don't make predictions, but, you know, what kind of strategy should people be thinking about?
5: Last year was a very good year, and that was a welcome relief because 2022 was a historically bad year. I mean, not only were stocks down, but bonds were down, you know, in double-digit declines. And it was just, you know, it was very unusual. It was two years in a row of bond declines, which almost never happens. It was the first time the TSP uh, F fund and the stock funds had gone down in the same calendar year. And, you know, just looking at, Financial markets in general is the first time that anybody can remember, maybe since the Great Depression or something like that. So it was pretty discouraging for investors. Then last year uh, there were a lot of ups and downs, but especially the last two uh, last two months of the year, uh, everything really jumped, and we ended up the C fund was up twenty six percent, the S fund twenty five percent, the I fund eighteen percent. And finally, the bond funds went up 5.6%, which is a good return for bond funds and outperformed the G fund uh, for the first time in a long time. So we finally saw what, you know, investors are looking for. And it really benefited people who obviously stayed invested. So if, if you were a TSP participant, became discouraged and either pulled out of the stock and the funds and the F fund or whose uh, biweekly investments were not going into those funds, you really lost out. And actually, since the last two months of the year contained all the bond fund gains, all the F fund gains, and a very large proportion of the stock fund gains, You had to be in there for those two months, especially. It seems like
1: people make the mistake of, you know, if they want to swing around their investments of taking what's going on in the news and somehow overlaying that with what they think the market will do. And there's been lots of bad news in the last quarter of 2023, the war in the Middle East. The Ukraine situation droning on, the political paralysis in the United States, but the market doesn't necessarily follow those things, which means you're putting yourself in potential danger if you try to beat the market based on the news.
5: Absolutely. And one way to put it, Tom, is the economy is not the stock market and the stock market is not the economy. And one of the reasons that's true is that the stock market is what's called a leading indicator. It tends to go down before the economy starts to decline, and it tends to go up before the economy starts to recover. And so it makes it very hard to time the market based upon what's going on now, and it's one of the reasons why trying to time the market, trying to get in and out of the stock or bond funds based upon what you think is going to happen, has really been a losing proposition. Right. Uh, The the better strategy is just to decide what allocation you want between stock funds and bond funds, and then invest accordingly and stick to that allocation. Yeah, people that
1: have great stories about how they beat the market or time this or that stock sometimes remind me of people who went to Las Vegas and came back, and they never tell you about the losses. They only tell you about how they could do no wrong at the crap tables or something, and you would think that you actually could have a chance of winning at the long term in Las Vegas, which nobody does.
5: Yeah. And there's actually an academic term for this. It's called recency bias, that we tend to think that whatever has happened recently is going to happen in the future, because it's you know what we remember most closely.
1: We're speaking with Art Stein, certified financial planner with Arthur Stein Financial in Bethesda, Maryland. And so looking ahead to 2024, people are You know, we're here already and the same wars are going on, the same political paralysis is in the country. And so, you know, the underlying situation hasn't changed because the calendar turned over. So what are you advising people with respect to thinking about strategy
5: for the coming year? Okay, well, first of all, we have to remember that there is a lot of good news about the economy. Employment's remained very strong and interest rates have come down a little bit. Inflation has certainly come down and, uh, you know, economic growth has continued. So the our economy continues to do well. You know, the general forecast for last year was that there would clearly be a recession. I mean, that was just, you know, most people who forecasted, that's what they were forecasting. And now I'm seeing the same forecast. So the people keep forecasting a recession and eventually they're going to be correct. Uh, maybe not this year, maybe it'd be 10 years from now, but, and then they will be crowned the king of four, a uh, queen, king or queen of forecasting because they have got it right. I think a key thing for people to do in the early part of the year, it's a great time to review your financial situation and see where you are and whether you are uh, on the right path. So, of course, you want to look at your TSP allocation uh, with all the ups and downs. I mean, is the allocation what you want? And if not, you can rebalance. Employees, uh, of course, want to look at the uh, allocation of their biweekly investments, which you know can be very different than their current allocation. And one thing we often recommend is that your biweekly investments can be much more aggressive than your current allocation because that you just have smaller amounts going in every two weeks. And if the markets go down, uh, that's good for you at that point because you are buying low. Then another question you need to ask yourself is do you want to be in the Roth TSP or do you want your money in a Roth IRA? You know, the whole Roth question. So uh, current participants, employees, have the choice of their contributions going either into the regular tsp or a roth tsp or the roth tsp and the major difference is that the money you put in the regular tsp whatever you put in reduces your taxable income by the same amount for that year so if you put in 10000 into the tsp you're going to reduce your taxable income $10,000. Now, of course, when you take that money out, it's fully taxable. With a Roth, the money that you put in does not reduce your taxable income. But when you take it out, there's no tax on the withdrawals. So you're foregoing a um, tax deduction on a smaller amount for a tax free withdrawal and hopefully a much larger amount in the future. One downside of that is that for employees, the reduction in, because there's no tax break on contributions, your taxable income is going to be higher and you want to make sure that you can afford that. Now you can split up, you know, so that some of your uh, contribution goes to the Roth and some to the regular, but people need to look at that. And there are a lot of advantages to a Roth account. For retirees, they can decide to do what's called a Roth conversion, so they can take money out of an IRA and put it in a Roth IRA. And but then it's uh, the amount they transfer is fully taxable at the time. That's a much more difficult decision and re, uh, requires a lot of planning. And it's very – whether it's a good idea or not depends upon one's personal situation.
1: Right. So in deciding, though, Roth or regular TSP 401k style, you have to understand or you have to kind of have an anticipation of what your tax rate will be when you withdraw, presuming Absolutely. that it's going to be lower. And if you get some great private sector job where your salary triples when you when you turn, you know, and you're still working at the age of the minimum withdrawal, then you might have a higher tax than you would have if you'd done the Roth years
5: earlier. Absolutely. See the especially with the Roth conversion, you have to look at one: how long do you think the money is going to be invested in the Roth? And you know, if you're 85 years old, a Roth conversion makes less sense than if you're a 35-year-old employee. And it also makes a difference how aggressively you're investing. You know, if all the money's going in the G fund, it really doesn't make much of a difference. But if you're an aggressive investor, you're putting a lot of money into stocks, into the stock funds, CS&I, and you expect those to grow very rapidly, then it makes more sense. Now, those are not the other variables. Another way to look at that is that if you think that your tax rate's going to be lower when you withdraw the money, then just in terms of doing the calculations, a Roth conversion doesn't make as much sense. But we have to look at the fact that, you know, taxes may be higher in the future because we're running huge deficits.
1: All right. So have a plan. Have a strategy. Don't time The market and some eternal truths, you might say.
5: Yeah. Uh, Another thing to look at is life insurance. And I find many people are underinsured, especially if you are, for instance, married, you have kids and only one spouse works. You need a lot of life insurance on that spouse, like 10 times salary is not too much. And for a healthy person, they need to compare what it costs for Fegley. Uh, the federal government life insurance uh, group policy, with what they can get in the private sector. And healthy feds are going to probably find that the private sector policies are cheaper and no reason not to get them. Uh, I would say that everyone should calculate their net worth every year, value of everything you own minus your debts. And that should be going up every year. If it's not, it's a real warning signal. Now, if you're retired and you're older, you you don't expect to see that increase in net worth, perhaps. But it's still nice if it happens. So life insurance, calculate net worth. Again, an area where I see a lot of mistakes being made is in homeowners and auto insurance because many people do not have enough liability insurance. And this is if you have an accident, you're at fault, you get sued, or if someone's at your house and they fall or slip and they're seriously injured and they sue you, how much is your insurance actually going to cover? And what you're going to find is that for most people, it's going to be somewhere around a hundred to maybe $500,000 dollars and so think of it, you know, like you have someone over to your house, your kids have friends over, some kid falls down the stairs, can't walk for the rest of her life. Uh, you could easily get sued and lose a million or $2 million lawsuit. And your uh, homeowner's insurance going to say, great, we'll cover that up to $250,000. And the rest of it, that's on you. Well, you don't want to be in that situation. You want to look at what's called umbrella liability insurance, which is sold in million-dollar increments to cover that excess liability in home and auto. And one of the great things about umbrella liability insurance is it's very cheap. Like I'd say most people can get a million dollars covering auto and home of umbrella coverage for about six eight hundred dollars a year. Well, why not have the extra coverage for that? Okay. And then finally, make sure you have emergency funds sufficient to cover you for two three four five six months of expenses. Especially for feds who are working, but even for retirees, you know, if the government closes down, we could be in a situation again. Where salaries are not being paid, and it even it would be pretty extreme, but you know, maybe uh, annuities are not being paid either. And uh, people should be prepared for that. So beginning of the year, it's a great time to review your situation, make some decisions, and do that every year.
1: Certified financial planner Art Stein of Arthur Stein Financial, as always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at slash federal drive. Subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your podcasts. Human capital officers have one big message for the Office of Personnel Management limited resources, they say. That's the single greatest impediment to long term workforce planning. OPM's recent review of human capital management in the government shows both successes and challenges. Here with more on the results, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, let's start with a reminder of what OPM covers in this annual human capital review.
6: So each year, OPM will meet with different human capital leaders from different agencies to understand what challenges they have in workforce planning and what successes they've had over the last year. When you look at workforce planning, what that actually means is how do you manage human capital or the workforce of an agency? So that can mean anything from making sure that you have the right people, the right skills, the right person in the right position, and having them there at the right time as well. These human capital reviews are really an opportunity for agency leaders to tell OPM where they are struggling and maybe offer some suggestions to OPM for where they need help and where they need OPM to uh, look at to try to help with this long-term workforce planning.
1: And why are they saying that resources, do they mean enough people in the HR staff and other funding issues that they can't do better future workforce planning?
6: It's a combination of both of those. What they're referring to is really financial resources. Number one, it's just the amount of budget or funding that they have to put towards workforce innovations and scaling these practices to try to best plan for what skills they're going to need both right now and for the future. But of course, like you said, it's also this matter of skills, having the right skills on staff, having the right employees in human capital or human resources departments to be able to help create that workforce plan.
1: Got it. All right. And so workforce planning, they need their own people to do. And I'm when they say they don't have enough resources, they probably mean they don't have enough people to carry out the plans they would want, I guess.
6: That is part of it for sure. And, you know, as I'm sure you've heard many times, and I have as well, this idea of strategic human capital management uh, has been on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list since 2001. So more than two decades, GAO has said that skills gaps or not having enough uh, employees at agencies or in HR is contributing to a lot of these really big fundamental challenges for government overall. So I think what you're hearing is an, an echo here from agency human capital leaders themselves saying a similar problem is is what they're experiencing on their end as well.
1: What else is challenging workforce planning? What are some of the other things that were reported to OPM in this latest review?
6: So interestingly, one thing that a lot of human capital leaders are focusing on or want to try to do more of is uh, looking at data, workforce data, and analyzing that data, but While they do have access to a lot of data, for example, on things like the age of their workforce, attrition levels, etc., OPM found that through these conversations and the reviews that they had on human capital, that agencies didn't really have the expertise or the capacity to be able to manage that data or understand how to use that data to make changes to their workforce going forward. So now you have a lot of human capital leaders at different agencies asking OPM for help interpreting or understanding their workforce data and asking OPM for help as well in training uh, for their HR workforce to be able to understand that data and then just make workforce planning changes based on it.
1: So that whole idea of understanding the data and using the data in the work you're doing, that's a skill gap in the HR staffs themselves, in effect.
6: Exactly. It is a government-wide skills gap in in data and understanding data like that. But in HR staffs specifically, um, I think agency human capital leaders have said it would help them understand how to best plan for what types of skills or what areas of their workforce they're going to need to improve both right now and in the future.
1: Well, personally, I like to manage things emotionally. Data just gets in the way of doing what you really want to do, I suppose. (laughs) And there's some good examples of things that happened well. What are some of those?
6: So OPM, in addition to highlighting some of the, the challenges that agencies faced in workforce planning, they also highlighted a lot of successes over the last year or so from different agencies. So for one, the education department, they created what they said is called a workforce dashboard. And this is a way that agency leaders can understand or take a look at at least at the workforce data. And they also did some budget projections to understand what type of staffing they would need to be able to, you know, continue meeting their mission. At NASA, they also use data and data dashboards to understand the, their workforce and where they might need to have some improvements And NASA also had um, a pretty significant change in their recruitment Uh, over the last year. They were able to reduce their time to hire from 134 days down to 71 days. So that is a pretty significant difference. So I think uh, OPM is saying, I think they're trying to highlight a lot of these examples from agencies to hopefully show others where or how they can they can reach that same level.
1: All right. And getting back to some of the issues identified, lack of resources and data skills that are affecting all of this planning activity, besides admiring the problem, were there some good recommendations to OPM to do something about it?
6: So one area, and this is pretty interesting, Tom, too, because I know OPM has talked a lot about this recently. One area that a lot of agency human capital leaders have been asking for help with is um, in pooled hiring and OPM has planned a lot of pooled hiring initiatives for out for the next year. This is essentially when different agencies who are hiring for the same or similar types of positions can use the same list of uh, qualified candidates to hire from, which eases the hiring process. So they've asked OPM as they are ramping up pooled hiring over the next year or so that one of the areas that agencies want help with in in terms of pooled hiring is for student interns. So they're asking OPM to do a government-wide announcement and let agencies share certificates for their internship programs for this coming summer.
1: This is not the first and it won't be the last review of Human Capital by OPM. Did the agency indicate what it plans to focus on for the next time?
6: So they are going to look a little bit closer at this uh, goal of improving data analysis and being able to understand how data can help with workforce planning. Uh, OPM right now is in the process of organizing the human capital reviews. They'll take place in March, so just a couple months from now. And um, that's when OPM will start collecting that data and then eventually turn it into a more comprehensive report or review of what's going to be needed or worked on over the next year.
1: Well, it's good OPM's listening to the right people, you might say.
6: Yeah, I suppose that's true.
1: (laughs) If you're in personnel, listen to the personnel people. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temen.